The uh, scripture reading today is uh, John 2, verses 1 through 11. The next day, Jesus' mother was a guest at a wedding celebration in the village of Cana in Galilee. Jesus and his disciples were also invited to the celebration. The wine supply ran out during the festivities, so Jesus' mother spoke to him about the problem. They have no more wine, she told him. How does that concern you and me, Jesus asked. My time has not yet come. But his mother told the servants, do whatever he tells you. Six stone water pots were standing there. They were used for Jewish ceremonial purposes and held 20 to 30 gallons each. Jesus told the servants, Fill the jars with water. When the jars had been filled to the brim, he said, Dip some out and take it to the master of ceremonies. So they followed his instructions. When the master of ceremonies tasted the water that was now wine, not knowing where it had come from, though of course the servants knew, he called the bridegroom over. Usually a host serves the best wine first, he said. Then, when everyone is full and doesn't care, he brings out the less expensive wine. But you've kept the best until now. This miraculous sign at Cana in Galilee was Jesus' first display of his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Amen. The pastor is now going to bring us replacing the old with the new. And there it is. We're studying the Gospel of John, and in our, our series, I'm hoping that I can give you some help to make that a really a fruitful and a uh, um, worthwhile experience. And I want to just briefly say a few words about how you might be able to benefit most by reading John. Uh, remember, John had a purpose for writing, and if you keep that purpose in mind, it'll help you to understand why he's saying what he's, he's saying. Um, and the purpose, he says, in the last of the book is that we might believe. He gathered particularly these stories, constructed them together so they would create belief. And he chooses intentionally uh, what he has put in there for that. So whenever you read anything out of the book of John, you've got to be thinking about belief. He's, he's, he's trying to build belief in us through those stories. <clears throat> and our job is to understand why, or we entirely miss the point. Now, one thing that I'm just saying here is that John is a, 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 a man who is encompassed with love. He spent so much of his life so close to Jesus, you know, that he was able to get in touch with the love that was inside Jesus like very few people have. And it gave him an insight and an understanding of what love really was. He could, not just something that he reasoned through, it's something that he experienced and felt. And how wonderful it is when it happens that way because it becomes instinctual. How wonderful it would be in our lives if love would be just instinctual. And I think John was successful in becoming that, gospel, that apostle of love simply because he was so close to Jesus. If it worked for him, can it work for us that way too? Yeah. So, going over to <clears throat> the apostle Paul in the 13th chapter First Corinthians, he, he goes through this litany and he says, it's not oratory, it's not prophecy, mystery. If I knew all of these things, can do all of these things, knowledge, generosity, self-sacrifice, do all these wonderful things. Has it gained me anything? What's his answer? No. 
But there are faith, hope, and love, the greatest of which is love. And so uh, Paul, the theologian of the New Testament, also had to admit, the greatest theologian perhaps of all time in many ways, had to admit that it was love. And John had already mastered that. And he mastered it in the way you're supposed to, all of us are supposed to. So when you read the Gospel of John, I want you to stop frequently as you read it and think to yourself, what is this passage telling me about belief? Belief in Jesus. And what is this passage telling me about love? And don't just assume that you know the answer. Now you probably, just like John, are going to get your answers instinctually from the Holy Spirit while he put his head right on Jesus' breast, you know, and, and just was there always observing and watching everything that Jesus did. All of a sudden, flashes of new insight came into his brain. That'll happen to us when we read the book. And we read it slowly and we think about it. So stop and then compare. Is what coming to me, what's coming to me from what I'm hearing in John, reading in John, is that confronting me with things in my life, the way I do things? Am I different? Am I the same as what John is talking about? And as you do this, stopping and then analyzing and then learn from the experience and let it become yours, you'll have a benefit uh, that'll be unforgettable in reading the Gospel of John. First, I'm going to give you some background timing so you'll understand. This is necessary so you can kind of pull the story that we're looking at today together. Uh, Jesus was probably born somewhere around 4 or 5 B.C. Uh, his infancy to manhood went uh, from there to A.D. 27. In the year 27, the ministry of John the Baptist started. And John's, remember, John started his ministry six months before Jesus suddenly appeared. And John just basically awoke the whole nation up out of slumber, caused them to be thinking. And so his ministry started in the spring, probably, of 27. John's confession and baptism of Jesus in the fall, probably six months later. And Jesus then was swept away into the 40 days of being tempted. Remember about that story in the Bible? Jesus was tempted in the wilderness. And now we come to John's prologue in John chapter 1. And then Jesus is declared to be the Lamb of God by John the Baptist. And Jesus immediately begins to put together his disciple team. All this is happening in the fall of A.D. 27. Getting the picture in your mind of how it flowed here. And the first miracle comes also in the fall uh, in quick succession after the calling of the disciples, the wedding feast at Cana, which we just read about. Uh, Jesus is, is fresh from his battle. He's 40 days in the wilderness without bread. And he reappears to John the Baptist. And he is affirmed by John. He calls his disciples. They just said all these things. And he launches his ministry. And in respect for his mother, he appears with his disciples at this wedding feast in Cana. Now, how interesting. We would never have known about this story if it hadn't been for John. He chose to include this. The others didn't say a word about it. He includes this story. And he includes this story as his launching story about Jesus. So automatically, we want to know why. Why did he include this when the others left it out? What is there about this story that John said is so important that it inspires belief? Belief in whom? Jesus, right? And so we're going to be looking at the story of the wedding feast at Cana, and we're going to try to say, well, John, what are you trying to say here? What's this all about? So in the autumn of 27, Jesus was now 30 years of age. 
When a young man was 30 years of age, he was now capable of being a rabbi. Could be recognized that was the minimum age. And so Jesus was now rabbi. Now, his mother is at this feast, right? Do you think his mother had any remembrances of him growing up and all of the amazing stories that were floating and never could get out of her mind? None of those events could never leave her mind. And she knew that Jesus was now 30 and he was destined to be a great spiritual leader. Now that he's old enough to be a rabbi, she knows he's going to launch out. And so this is an important event, this wedding at Cana with the mother. Um, Now, you notice that if the wedding of Cana happened on Wednesday, then uh, the Apostle John's first contact with Jesus three days before would have been on Sabbath. The first contact, you know, that John has with Jesus is on the Sabbath. How absolutely amazing this is, to me anyway. Uh, Wouldn't you like to keep the Sabbath in the very presence of a creator? Would that be something? The Bible says the Sabbath is about being blessed and rested and sanctified, right? He spent his whole life resting on Jesus. This guy, who was the worst firebrand of the whole bunch of apostles, would blow off, hit somebody in the face, (laughs) more than any of the rest of them, put his head on Jesus, was transfixed by what he heard and what he saw Jesus do. And he was so blessed as he rested in Jesus. And how important and appropriate that this all started on a Sabbath, the first time they were together. And it sanctified John. It changed him. When you rest and you are blessed, you are sanctified. It just works like that. And the Bible says about the Sabbath that it will cause us to ride upon the high paces of the earth. Did that happen with John? Can you imagine anybody that had a closer more intimate, more exalted relationship on the Isle of Patmos. Supposed to be a damning, damning place for him. He was taken to the, into the very uh, audience of God. How wonderful. Not as a firebrand, but as someone who had understood the heart of Jesus. When you understand the heart of Jesus, you are now able to be a learner. You can hear. The word hearing, as I've said repeatedly, means what? Obey. Hearing, obeying, very same word. Not hearing, not obeying, also the same word. So hearing and obeying. So here he is, um, the two of them on Sabbath, it all started. Now you can see Jesus uh, spent so much of his time about, it says the Lake Hala, but that's basically the Lake of Galilee, the smaller, well, no, that's a pyre. Here we are, down here, Lake of Galilee. I'm in the wrong place here. In the Lake of Galilee, and if you go a little bit to your left, you can see Cana. Can you see it on the map? That's where the story took place. Uh, somewhere over by the lake or by the Jordan, in the Jordan Valley, Jesus with his disciples, he called them. They moved over to be in Cana. This is still the fall of AD 27 to be at this feast uh, that is superintended by the matron of honor who is the mother of Jesus. And here we just read it. I'm not going to read it again. But you, you have the issue about uh, there's a shortage of, of wine. And Jesus is uh, brought, uh, Jesus' mother has brought her to her attention and brings that to the attention of Jesus, and they had to do something about it. <clears throat> 
Now, a third century tradition tells us that John, the beloved disciple, was the son of Salome. We don't know if this is correct or not. The sister of Mary. So if this is correct, John and Jesus were, well, we do pretty well know that, don't we? Ellen White pretty much says the same thing, doesn't she? Okay, some scholars have thought that this wedding might have been the wedding of the Apostle John. We just have no idea about that. I just throw that out just for your consideration. Maybe, maybe not. Whatever the case, Mary's role at the wedding corresponded to that of a matron of honor. She was charged with helping cater the feast. The shortage of wine would be her personal responsibility. So if there's a shortage of wine, Mary feels that. Something must be done. She wants Jesus to do something. Why does she want Jesus to do something? Now you ladies tell me this. Why does she want Jesus to do something? Yes, that, but something else too. There's more to it. What? She knows he can, and there's something else. He's ready to start his ministry. She wants him to do it. She wants him to go forward. So, you ever thought about Mary that way? Yeah, she knew that he was called for this. And if the wine was dependent upon the generosity of the gifts, her comment might have been a slight rebuke to Jesus and his team of disciples for not bringing their share. I mean, he brings all of his crowd he should bring some juice, you know, for that, you know, as well. Uh, so Mary, knowing all that had recently happened about her son and aware that the age of the beginning of the ministry, remembered all she treasured in her heart from him, all from conception till now. Perhaps she, too, was pushing him to reveal himself, doing something wonderful. Do you know what the word wonderful means? Miracle. Miracle and wonderful are the same thing. The, the uh, sign. Uh, But his hour had not yet come. He knows he cannot win people's hearts by signs. Everybody was demanding that he do a sign. He knew that never changed hearts. Our hearts are made soft, not by tricks that people can do. But when we get in touch with their heart, that softens, that changes, that changes the entire being. His mother says to her helpers, Whatever he saith, do it. (laughs) Isn't that great? Whatever he says, do it. Our prayer should be, God, whatever you tell me, yeah, I'll do it. You know, that's it. So Jesus turns the water into wine. There were six water pots of stone, the manner of purifying of the Jews, continuing, oh, 60 gallons, apparently. Jesus said unto them, fill the water pots with water. And that's what they did. Is there anything outstanding about that? Filling the water pots with water? Nothing yet. Nothing. Is there a miracle yet? Did anybody know there was a miracle yet? Only when they poured out. This was supposed to be for Jewish ritual cleansing. They ran out of wine. Jesus did what? The water pots that were for cleansing the hands, you know, as, as you begin a meal or anything like that. Jesus went to there and turned those water pots into perfect wine. Um, okay, I'll get ahead here and get caught up. In, um, now, why does John start with a story? Going back to our whole point, when we read the Gospel of John, we're trying to understand this man who knew the heart of Jesus so well. What is he trying to say? Why is he starting with this story? I want you to think about that. Why? And what is he saying about Jesus that makes it a perfect beginning point? 
Can you remember those two questions and hold them in your brain for a little bit? As we take our little journey, I think you're going to find the answers to those questions. Now, first, I want you to look at this. This will kind of give you a mental framework and way to picture the story that we're going to talk about today. This is called, I just left my mind what it's called, (laughs) chiasis. And so, yeah. And so, basically, it starts with the miracle of Cana, and then the next story is the temple in Jerusalem, the discourse with Nicodemus. This is the way John lays it out. And then finally, the story about the Baptist. But notice what happens next. Then you have this part, the story about Jesus matching the Baptist. The discourse of Nicodemus is now matched with the discourse with the Samaritan woman. The events in Jerusalem are matched with the temple in Jerusalem. Do you see what I'm saying? This is right out of John. And look what he does. The second miracle in Cana. Can you see what John's doing here? He's taking you through a series that's calculated to reframe your thinking and to change the way you see things. And he's carefully constructing the stories and talking about the stories and relating the story in such a way to accomplish a specific purpose. Keep that in your mind. These are the things you discover as you open up the book and you begin to look at it. Now, what I want to talk to you about is the water. You remember the water in the pots? Okay, Moses turned water into blood in preparation for his people being allowed to escape Egypt. We all remember that, right? Notice the role that water has played throughout history. When leaving Egypt, he separated the waters at the Reed Sea so they can go through. What did water represent here? It was a transition from something that way it was to where it was meant to be. You see that? Water was in the middle. You went from here to there by way of the water. You see that? During the desert wanderings from the rock uh, indicated that they were under God's providences. And so, remember the water from the rock? Was God telling them, I'm taking care of you. I'm watching over you. It's my job to watch. You don't have to do this anymore. A new kind of an era. Crossing the Jordan symbolized that they were no longer wanderers, but they were now in their homeland. Water is always there. It's you go from here to there through the water. That's the point of change. You see what I'm talking about? And John is making that kind of a point here. Baptism means that we have become what? Part of Christ's family. You go through the water. You're this. Here's the water. You're that. You see what I... And and it's so obvious when you go through the Bible, it's always that way. So it's kind of interesting. John is aware of that, and he's bringing that to our attention very subtly. Then you find the story of Elisha with water in the Bible. He was the servant of Elijah, and he poured water over Elijah's hands. He was a servant pouring water. Notice what happens. When a time came for the mantle to be switched from Elijah to Elisha, What happens? Elijah is on his way. He's going to be taken to heaven. He passes the brook, uh, the uh, the Jordan, and he throws his mantle down. And what happens to the Jordan? It opens up dry land. He and Elisha walk across. And then Elijah is taken away, taken to heaven, and and the mantle is sent back to Elisha. Elijah's mantle sent back for Elisha. He goes back, he goes to the same uh, Jordan, he throws the mantle down, 
What's he wanting to find out? If it's passed, unto him. If the mantle is now his, right? And the Jordan opens. Can you see? The water is the transition. It's like it's saying, you're here, and now you're here, and you go through the water. And that's so obvious all the time. Elijah was transported to heaven, and there's all that. The son of the prophets, they saw what was happening, and they understood it, that they saw that the spirit of Elijah resided in Elisha. Okay? Just keep those in your mind. The men of Jericho complained that there was water. It was barren. There was no water. Um, uh, and Elisha asked them to make it good. Actually, not barren. It was bad. Mistaken typing there. It was bad, and Elijah was asked to make it good. He poured a curse of salt into the water, and it became good. Later, when the kings of Judah and Israel and Edom united against Moab, they found themselves their warriors and livestock in the desert without any water. They came to Elisha and they asked for help. He told them to start digging ditches. Digging ditches, no water. And as they dug the ditches, suddenly in the night the water just was there. And it flooded the desert. The water changes everything. You you see what I'm saying? And God has oftentimes used it that way. Uh, but when the Moabites saw it, look at this. You get this added direction here of water and blood, just like in Egypt and then later on in even the body of Jesus. Wow, on the cross. So this first miracle about the miracle in Cana with the water pot you know, being turned into wine uh, indicated the arrival of what? A brand new age in John's mind. Something the world had never seen before was about to start. And it was through this transition of the water that was the signal that John is giving. Here, it's here. It's here. Okay? Miracles. John lists seven of these miracles in his gospel uh, to alert us that things were changing. The water to wine, we've got that one. And then the official son who was healed. The sick man at the pool of Bethesda, the feeding of the 5,000, the walking on water, and the healing of a man born blind, and finally the raising of Lazarus. These, John says, are his seven signs, his seven miracles to prove who Jesus really is. Okay? We're going to read those and understand those as we go through the book of John and understand what it's all about, just like we're doing today with the first one. Okay. Now, Look at the parallels between Moses and Jesus. Like Moses, Jesus is threatened at birth by a hostile king who kills all the babies but the one he really wants to destroy. Do you see the parallel there? Uh, Like Moses, Jesus sees God. Like Moses, Jesus fasted 40 days. Like Moses, Jesus appointed 70 disciples. Like Moses, Jesus has 12 apostles. Like Moses, Jesus gave birth to law from a mountain, or gave a new law from a mountain. like, Je- like Moses, Jesus fed a multitude in the desert. Like Moses, Jesus was raised upon a cross as Moses lifted the serpent of his, on his staff in the wilderness. And like Moses, Jesus came out of Egypt just as Moses and the Israelites did. So John is telling stories that remind people of the past who Jesus was. He's trying to open up their hearts to try to get them ready to accept Jesus, which is another word for belief. These are written so that you might believe. And so he's going to draw these comparisons and he's going to just nail them down in people's minds, particularly in this gospel. The law came through Moses. The truth came through Jesus. 
Moses lifted the serpent, Jesus was lifted up. If you would have believed Moses, you would have believed in me, he says. Moses gave bread from heaven, I am that bread. And they wanted to stone him. Jesus acknowledged God, spoke through Moses, but refused to do the same. The Jews acknowledged that God spoke through Moses, but refused to do the same for Jesus. So the theme of the Gospel of John is replacement. These old Jewish ideas are now being replaced in the body of what? One person, Jesus Christ. The one who John put his head on his breast. The one who he, he got to be changed just by being so close. John realized, like we said in the last sermon we got about, you know, it's not philosophy, it's not knowledge, it's none of that stuff. It's knowing Jesus and experiencing Jesus in your life that totally changes you. John was the foremost authority on that. And he's telling us in this gospel how that happens. The greatest example uh, to teach the Jews, uh, it says here, uh, refusal to accept Jesus made the Jews in Jesus' day into their own enemies. If you don't accept Christ, you become your own worst enemy. That's the end result. You've seen it played out in so many people's lives that way, right? If you don't accept Christ, you are your own destroyer, right? They had become, uh, they had become Pharaoh and the Egyptians, you know, the ones that killed them, now they were the ones that were killing themselves. Uh, greatest example was in AD 70. Herod was building the Jewish temple from ni- uh, 19 B.C. until finally in 63, 82 years to build that project. But just seven years later, after 82 years, seven years later, because of the Jews' obstinance, stubbornness, and not having Christ in their heart to soften them. And I have to say this to you. There are a lot of Jews that have soft hearts today. But there's a lot of them over there just like this. Just like this. And they're their own worst enemies. And they're going to bring upon them the same thing that happened in the era of Rome. So, we, and John is trying to say, you can't fix your life by yourself. Not by any theology, not by any uh, a, a lifestyle practice or anything, rules, regulations, whatever. It's changed only by your direct confrontation of Jesus Christ as he comes into your heart and changes you. That's what John is trying to say. And you've got to do that. A stubborn and headstrong people. Nobody makes his case stronger than John. They simply would not hear. Uh, John says, he was in the world and the world was made by him and the world knew him not. He came unto his own, and his own received him not. What was that that Dean was saying during Sabbath school? You know, that there is born into us this kind of, what was it, a knowledge that we have given to Adam when he created? He understood how they were, and he named them appropriately because of his understanding. Well, that gets destroyed. They didn't know him. And so that gets destroyed. Our own identity gets lost in the process. They had no comprehension of spiritual things and only the Holy Ghost can give us the spiritual things and they would find themselves in utter darkness. In utter darkness, you just simply do not know which way to turn. And the whole world and a lot of Fort Bragg is there today. They need whom? Not what. They need whom? He's the only one. And they need to experience him kind of like John. And the Gospel of John is a great book to take to people. 
Now, that's a deplorable situation. The temple had become a feedlot filled with profiteering for the priestly class. Sick, absolutely sick. People who desperately needed salvation are now <laughs> cattle trading. And, and what are they doing? They're hiking up the prices on the poor people so that the priests who are already very wealthy class have more money. Uh-huh. Who, where'd that idea come from? Their only passion now was political security in themselves. Uh-huh. The Pharisees had become angry zealots. So here is the priestly class. The Pharisees, these are the situations of the groups of the Jews. The Pharisees had become angry zealots. Have you seen that in our political situation, in our world today? I mean, this stuff has been played out in our world today. Majoring on insignificant. That's what a, a zealot does. Essenes, who left it all, these three classes of Jews, the priests, the Pharisees, and the Essenes, they left society, went out into an isolated spot, and created a kind of an idealistic world. Now, is that what John is recommending? You find it in Christ, not by escaping like the Essenes, not by prompting up a thousand different rules about everything, you know, and becoming a zealot, not like, you know, robbing and getting unfilthy rich, you know, none of that. No one was compassionate, spiritual, and noble among this whole lot. They were going the wrong direction, and God had come to give them knowledge. Now, this is the barrenness that happens when you don't have it. Nicodemus. Jesus talks with him a little later on, the third chapter, the next chapter. Was Nicodemus barren? He was a leader of the Jews. He was an educator of the Jews. He was a member of the ruling class. But he was barren. And Jesus basically said to him, what's the matter with you that you don't know these things? You're a leader and you don't know them? Wow. The Samaritan woman that Jesus met in chapter 4. John's going to introduce us to a lot of people who are absolutely barren. The Samaritan woman who were going about her days just absolutely lost and angry and empty. Sad. The man who had just lost his son feeling totally barren. The 38 years of this paralyzed man in chapter 5 who had been waiting for a healing. That's barrenness. Total emptiness. Generations just clinging to all kinds of dead forms. That's what John is talking about. So he's addressing to all these people that have all of this terrible waste and emptiness in their lives. And he's saying, your solution is where? It's coming. And at the wedding feast in Cana is where he first begins to make this case for that. The water. Transition time. New things are going to happen. You remember, water in abundance had always been associated with New Jerusalem, you know, and heaven, you know, and everything being rich, you know. And so everybody that had any knowledge of this should have picked that up. A life apart from Jesus in John chapter 5. We'll look at that one. Never knowing where your next meal will come from, John chapter 6. Life when you're about to lose it. Also in John 6. And being engulfed in sin, you remember Mary. So John deals with every one of these things. And he's saying the answer is where? In Jesus Christ. 
For John, it's all about Jesus. There is no other way to be saved. Jesus must be absolutely absorbed into your soul. Faith in John is always a what? It's a verb, meaning what? There's action going on. When John says believe, Jesus said believe. In John, it always meant action. Don't just sit there and take it as a noun in theory. You know, it's action. Act on it. John was acting on it. Was he, was he trying to, to make money off of it, profiteer off of it? Was he trying to become a zealot, you know, and prove himself? Was he trying, you know, to escape? Was that kind of action? No, he just stayed closer and closer and closer to Jesus. Did he make mistakes during the time that he was doing that? A lot of mistakes, abraded occasionally by Jesus himself. But when at the cross, which was the only disciple staying at the cross at the end? Why? Because he had learned to put his ear, his heart, knit right in with Jesus' heart. Verily, verily, I say unto you, except a corn of wheat fall to the ground and die, it abideth alone. But if it die, it bringeth forth much fruit. He that loveth his life shall lose it, and he that uh, hateth his life in this world shall keep it life eternal. Except a man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. That's what John, uh, Jesus said to Nicodemus. Never there was a man who spake like Jesus. Well, I hope that you will continue this journey through John with what I'm sharing from the front when we get together, what you're reading, and even though you might be reading it and not getting all of the things that I share from up here, working together from up here and your personal reading, you're going to find that book just jump out alive at you. And it's going to mean an awful lot to you. I always say awful. That's a bad word to use in something good, isn't it? It's going to mean a whole lot. Yeah, whole is better. Better, more as we, as we work together, uh, sharing from the pulpit here and also, and we're going to do it all through this year. We're going to spread it out all through the year and at the end of the year I think we'll be quite a ways along in our understanding and appreciating of what John was doing. And then whenever you pick up the Gospel of John, it's a friend. You know it. It's yours. You can see new things in it every time you pick it up because of the fact that you've got the background. We didn't grow up in John's world. We didn't experience what John experienced. But you know what? As we open up those doors and walk inside, we can start beginning to do that. Thank you in all of the parts of, this, of our service, the butterflies and our children's story, our Sabbath school class at the beginning, our prayer time that we spent together, the song that we have just sung that so beautifully says the things that we feel in our heart. Thank you for all of that, Lord. May these words be treasured in our heart. And as this year goes by and we look at the writings of this one that loved you so, that you allowed yourself to open up to so completely, may we experience in some way what he experienced is our prayer. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.